CPAC. Hopefully there's a bookmark in there to get you to James or close to it, uh, towards the back of the Bible. And so, um, as your turn back ends up, I'd just like to thank our hospitality team who serves us, who cares for us, who uh, has this desire to make it so that anyone who comes in here, whether you have been part of this church forever, or this is the first time, the, the hospitality team's goal and desire that everybody would find some rest and welcome, uh, and that they would leave here cared for. And so they come early, they set up, they make things look good, they answer questions, they greet us, they create this sense of, uh, of family, this sense of rest in this place. So everybody on the hospitality team, thank you very much. Thank you, Monica, for the ways that you serve and, and take care of us and make sure that um, things are where they're supposed to be and how they're supposed to be. And hospitality is an important part. I, I can guarantee you, if I, if I surveyed the members of our church and we asked, why did you keep coming back? Why did you want to be part of this church? It would be because um, because of the connection, because of the relationships, because of the, the culture that has been built here, the intentional, hospitable culture. And so if you are interested in being part of that ministry, uh, we'd love for you to join in. And so an easy way to do that, you can fill out this connect card and see that around you. You can circle hospitality and drop it in the offering basket up here, and we can get you plugged in and connected. So um, thank you again for everybody on that team. Um, all right, so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into James 2. So please bow your heads and uh, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for relationships, community, fun. We thank you for uh, this gift of gathering together to celebrate, to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be united. God, this is a great blessing to have a place in this city where we can gather together and boldly and loudly celebrate you and sing and pray and open your word and hear from you. Uh, and that's why we're here, God. We're here to hear from you. We are here to engage with you, to connect with you, and have a word from you. And so, Lord, we know that you have something for each of us individually and something for us corporately. Lord, you have a reason for today. Today is not just to get us to tomorrow. You give us today for a purpose because you have work we want to do in our heads and our hearts and through us. So, God, I pray that you would help us to be attentive to Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorified to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and his name. Amen. So once a month or so, I gather with EFCA churches, uh, pastors in Chicago, and uh, I met with a couple of them uh, this last week, and the thing that we talked about was prayer. What does it look like to cultivate a, a thriving prayer life for pastors? Because it can be hard, it can be a challenge to sometimes separate our engagement with God based on us being a pastor from our engagement with God based on us being just sons and daughters of, of God. Uh, and for pastors, we have to kind of be very vigilant to watch over that. Uh, and so we were talking about that as the conversation turned. Eventually it turned to um, we talked about needing to have a delight in the Lord, to have an enjoyment of God. Because yes, all things like reading the Bible and gathering and prayer, we call these spiritual disciplines. Right, discipline, you just, sometimes you just gotta do it, you just gotta keep showing up. And yes, we keep showing up. But if we don't delight, we don't enjoy at some level, if we don't enjoy what we're doing, if we don't enjoy God, then that showing up thing that's gonna run out real quick. And it's gonna become just this thing that we do, this task that has to get done. But to have a relationship with God is to have joy and, and excitement and rest and this welcoming into his presence. And so we talk a lot about delighting in God. And that is, is really, this morning we're going to talk about, we have a, a, a very big passage of scripture this morning.
eventually, I want to land the plane this morning to you. We need to be a people who delight God, and from that flows out everything else. Our delight, our enjoyment of the love of God. Do we love God is the question we need to be asking. James starts out in verse 14. I'm going to read it, and we'll go back and talk about it. Let's go, let's jump into verse 14 of chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is the do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith is active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. As we jump in, I, I want to kind of set the table for us a little bit because as you've heard those words, and if you have any kind of Bible background, you know this is a passage, there's, there's some, some potholes we have to kind of avoid stepping into. There's, verse 14 starts with a very hard question, and, and a big question. It's the question that, that needs answering. It's the question that we will continue to come back to, and this whole passage really focuses on. And that question is, can faith without works save? Can faith without works save? It's the main focus of this point. This is the question James is trying to answer throughout this whole passage. And while this passage goes in a couple of different directions, all that's the question we're trying to answer this morning. Can faith without works save? We see, on its own, isolated, it's a question that can lead us down a lot of different trails and rabbit holes that take us away from the main focus of what James is trying to do. And this whole section has a bunch of different examples of that. Verse 17, faith by itself without works is dead. That's a big statement. Right? So many of us grow up in churches just have faith. Right? Just have faith. Just, just put your faith in Jesus. Just have faith. But just faith, James says, is just not alive. Verse 18, I will show you my faith by my works. And we're walking right up into that self-righteous works righteousness, aren't we? Let me show you how good of a Christian I am. Let me bust out the spiritual checklist and show you just how great at doing this Christianity thing I am. Verse 24, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, if I take any one of those verses individually, like this, if we just isolate one verse on the screen, and we ignore everything else going on, ignore everything else James is saying, and ignore the context, issues can arise. The Bible does not contradict itself. I'm going to say this from the top, because we're going to get into a lot of different things, and we need to hear this. James is not arguing that we have to add works to our faith in order to be saved. He is not saying we have to add anything to our faith to be saved. If he were to argue that, 
In essence, what he would be doing is arguing that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross wasn't enough. That the cross didn't get the job done, and therefore, I need to add my own thoughts, my own actions, in order for salvation to be really completed. Jesus, thanks for the cross, thanks for the death, thanks for the resurrection, but he didn't quite get the job done. Step aside, let me finish it. To argue that way is to minimize the cross completely. It belittles the gospel message and defies what Jesus said and did while on earth, and really defies what God has been saying and doing in creation since creation started. And if the cross didn't get the job done, if it is finished, wasn't really finished, that means you and I are still on the hook for our sin and all of our rebellion and all the times when we walked away from God and we are doomed and damned under the law to suffer eternally separated from God in hell. So clearly James cannot be arguing that. He's not arguing that. James is not saying we need to add works to our faith in order for us to be saved. Saved. He's not saying we can earn or work or win our way to heaven. So then, what is he saying? What is he arguing for? Again, James' main point in all of this is to say that if a person has genuine faith, out of that genuine faith will flow works. I want to do a couple of just quick definitions there because these words faith and works are going to get tossed around a lot this morning. Faith, we're going to go with a very simple definition for Faith is a trust in God and confidence in his character. Right? We can argue, we can add to it, we can make that a lot longer. Yes. Faith is a trust in God and confidence in his character. And when we talk about works this morning, we talked last week, we saw that he talked about being under the law of liberty, the law of freedom, the gospel. And if we walk into that, and what was Jesus trying to teach us? What was Jesus trying to, how did we work out what the law of liberty and the gospel looks like? Well, Jesus boiled it down to us into the two great commandments, right? Love God, love people. So works is living a life of loving God and loving others. Okay, are we good with those definitions? Anybody want to argue? Don't, because we have a lot to go through. We can argue later. Cool? Cool. Alright. And we know that James likes works, right? We've through, if you've been with us as we've walked through this first chapter and a half, much of this letter is based on imperatives. Do this. There's been a lot of imperatives and instructions for the Christians he's writing to. And we, at our core, we like lists. Right? We like lists, whether it's a to-do list, or a birthday wish list, or a shopping list, or a list of the best tacos in the city. Instructions on how to win a game. We like lists. Why? Because they bring order. They make us feel like we have some control. They bring clarity. They at least give us the illusion of we know what we're doing. But if we aren't careful, then lists can control us and overwhelm us. And the list can become the most important thing. I gotta get through these things, I gotta check the boxes, I gotta get all these things done, and we lose sight of the reason why we have the list in the first place. Why do we do what we do? As I said before, ultimately the motivation for what we do needs to be out of a delight and enjoyment and the love of God. Out of that, out of that place, out of that heart should flow everything else. And so James says in verse 14, can faith, can that faith without work save? He asks in verse 15, he gives an illustration. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things that needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
If a brother or sister shows up, not a stranger, not an enemy, a brother or sister, a member of the church body, a fellow Christian, someone in the community, if they show up and they are poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, not just unfashionable and on a diet, we're talking suffering. We're talking about hurting. They are in need of something. They need some tangible help. They have bills to pay. And the response from the Christian is, go in peace. You should really eat and put some better clothes on. And we don't actually help them? What, what good is that? Someone is in need, and the response cannot be from the Christians, hey, thoughts and prayers. Hey, care emoji. When you have the ability to fill that need, to take care of that need, and you don't, what good is that? That's not saying that prayer is pointless or powerless, but rather James is going to say it later on in chapter 4. He's going to say, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Praying for the needs of a person is a privilege and gift that we have as Christians, but if you are doing that to the exclusion of actually doing something to provide for the physical needs of that person, we have missed entirely what it means to live out James's argument is that faith that is in word only, has no works tied to it, is dead. A faith without works is a faith that doesn't work. You know what dead people can't do? Anything. Because they're dead. Faith that doesn't work, faith that doesn't serve, faith that doesn't respond is a faith that, faith that has no pulse, is a faith that is dead. So can a faith without works save a person? Well, so far we know a faith without works is dead, so I don't know how it's going to do that. He goes on in verse 18, he says, a faith without works is useless. Now here in verse 18 and 19, James comes up with, with an argument, with, with someone giving a counterpoint to his. Most of the time in the New Testament, when we're reading the letters of the New Testament, they are dealing with specific things being dealt with by the Christians or by the church, right? Paul, Peter, James, they are writing to specific issues happening. So it very much would not surprise me that this argument that James comes up with in verse 18 and 19, that he lays out, this is an actual conversation he probably had somebody with somebody, right? You read Paul's letters, and Paul's going to name names. He's like, this person's arguing, this person needs to get kicked out of church, and he put names in the Bible forever for them to know they are forever labeled as those people who argued and, and brought disunity in the church. James is a little, little calmer. He doesn't actually say it. He doesn't actually give any names. But my guess is this was an actual conversation that he had. And the counterpoint, the argument goes like this. In verse 18, it's basically saying, look, there's faith and there's works. These things need to be said. You have your works, James, that prove your faith. I have my faith that God will save me. I know, I trust, I believe God will save me, and that's enough. And James is going to say, well, all right, you believe God's going to save you. You believe you are saved. Cool, great. Show me your faith apart from your works. You claim you have this faith. You claim you believe. Well, can you prove? How can you show me that you actually believe? How can you show that you actually have this faith apart from your works? Whereas on the flip side, James says, look, I also have faith. I also believe, and I can show you that I have faith. I can show you that I believe in God because I have works. I can show you by my works. I'm going to try and explain it this way. Can somebody give me a pen? 
saying, look, you believe, cool. So does the demonic world. And so he goes on and says, do you want to see that your faith without works is useless, that it's good for nothing, that it is ineffective? It does no one any good not having, just having an idea about maybe whether or not the pen will work if I never actually take the cap off and write with it. If I just trust that the pen's going to work, but I don't actually use it, it doesn't do anything any good. If you won't use it, what's the point? You can have all the knowledge about scripture in the world. You can know this book backwards and forwards. You can have all these memory verses memorized backwards and forwards. But spiritual intellect, theological intellect, does not equate to spiritual maturity. Spiritual intellect and theological intellect does not equate to spiritual maturity. Just because you know facts and figures about God doesn't mean you know God. Throughout this letter, James has been using illustrations somehow. Okay, here's the command, here's the imperative, and here's how this would play out in community. But here, in the end of James 2, instead, he, he goes into the Old Testament, he goes into history to prove his point. And he calls two witnesses forward to prove his point about the relationship between faith and works. The first one is Abraham. And it makes sense he's going to go to Abraham. Why? Who is James writing to? James is probably the earliest of the New Testament writings. And so he's writing when the church is scattered in the midst of persecution early in Acts. And at this point, most, pretty much almost all of the Christians are Messianic Christians, are Jewish Christians, are those who grew up in their Judaism, left that when they heard the gospel and became Christians. The Gentiles have not received the gospel just quite yet. So he's writing mostly to people who have a Jewish background. They grew up in, under the law. They grew up knowing, respecting, and clinging to their heritage, their bloodline. The fact that they can trace themselves all the way back to Father Abraham. Because he had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. It's like the ten people that caught that joke. That's totally fine. You don't have a church back now. Right, but that's okay. Some of us know the story of Abraham. He was made a promise by God. God calls out to Abraham, not because he did anything all that impressive, not because he did anything all that special. God chose Abraham. He says, Abraham, I am going to give you a son, an heir, that through that son, descendants will come so many as the stars in the sky. He also told Abraham, look, I'm going to give you land. There's going to be a place set apart for you and your descendants. And that you and your descendants are going to be a blessing throughout all of history. In Genesis 15, 6, which is what James quotes here, Genesis 15, 6, it says, And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and, count, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham believed the promise. Abraham was righteous because of his belief. Now you flash forward 30 or so years to Genesis 22. Abraham finally does have that son. His son's name is Isaac. Everything looks good. It's the fulfillment of the promise. Everything is great. And then God tells Abraham, I want you to go take a walk with your son. I want you to go walk up to this mountain. I want you to tie your son to a piece of wood. I want you to sacrifice your son to me, Abraham. Abraham did as he was told. He got the wood. He got the knife. And he grabbed his son and they went up on the mountain. Even as Isaac was saying, where's the ram, Dad? How are we going to do this, Dad? What's the plan here? And Abraham said, God's going to take care of it, Isaac. And he bound up his son. It's easy because we're 
are so disconnected to turn these into stories and parables. One human being named Abraham took his son, the fulfillment, his flesh and blood, the fulfillment of his promise from God, the son that he waited 25 years for, he tied him up and he tied him to a crucifix. And he takes out his knife and he's about to kill his son as an offering to God before God stops him. No, Abraham, don't. I see that you trust. I see that you believe. And God already knew Abraham's heart. But I don't know that Abraham knew Abraham's heart until he went to the cross. You might ask, what does all this have to do with James' argument about faith and works? James is using these two, these two events from Abraham's life, his original faith in God's promise, and the events with Isaac to fill his case for faith and works. James is not saying works saves us. Abraham was declared righteous long before he sacrificed his son. He believed God, he trusted God, he had faith that it was counted to him as righteousness. How do you know that Abraham had faith? Because he walked up Through this event, Abraham realized how deep his faith was, how deep that trust he had in God actually was. When it was put to the test, when it was put into action, and we see from that point on throughout the rest of his life, there's a new sense of peace and maturity in Abraham. He's no longer doing stuff like lying about his wife being his sister so that he doesn't get in trouble with the king. That's a bad decision, man. He went to that well twice. He made that error twice. But we don't see decisions like that coming from Abraham after this point on the mountain. James's argument is that the father of the faith, Abraham, proved his faith was real and genuine because he had a faith that walked itself up a hill in obedience to God and offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Abraham's works carried out showing his faith was real and genuine. Abraham used his spiritual pen to prove that it could work. That's what verse 22 is about there. You see, the scripture was fulfilled and says Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that, sorry, 22, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. In Abraham, we see his faith and his works in conjunction with one another. His faith was completed and matured in that moment. Now look, James is not contradicting the rest of the Bible. He's not contradicting the gospel in the way of salvation. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's not in question John Piper says it this way, that faith alone unites us to Christ for righteousness, and that faith that unites us to Christ for righteousness does not remain alone. It bears the fruit of love. It must do so for it is dead, useless faith and does not justify. We are justified, made right, we are justified by works, as James says in 24, in the sense that we have a true, genuine faith in Jesus, and that faith will produce fruit, the fruit of the works of glorifying God the Father, of the works of love God, love one another. There's a great Charles Spurgeon quote, I'll summarize it for you. Basically, he says, if you take an apple tree, you plant it in a field, and it produces leaves and apples, it bears fruit. Where does that tree get its life from? Where does the tree get its life from? The roots, good job. I know it's summer school, guys, but come on. The tree gets its life from its roots. Right? The apples on the tree don't give life to the tree. They are a marker that the tree has life. 
Now, that apple tree, over time, season after season, stops producing leaves, stops producing fruit. What would you assume about the tree? It's dead. The absence of those things show you that it's dead. The, the life that's on the tree, the apples, the leaves, those things don't make the tree alive. But the absence of them proves that they are dead, that it's dead. The same is true for the person who claims to be a Christian. The absence of fruit, the absence of works, living a life of loving God and loving others, is evidence that their faith is dead and ineffective and useless. And we said James uses two Old Testament illustrations. And it makes sense, he goes to Abraham, the father of the faith, that totally makes sense, that totally plays. But the other one, the other witness that he goes to, it's not Isaac, it's not Jacob, it's not David, it's none of the heavy hitters. He goes to Rahab. Our stories in Joshua 2. If you're looking for something to study this week, go to Joshua 2. You can go to Joshua 2 this week. She's also mentioned in other places in the Bible. Rahab is directly addressed nine times throughout the Bible. Six of those times where she's directly mentioned in the Bible. It either says Rahab the prostitute, the prostitute Rahab, or just the prostitute. And God is not writing the Bible trying to build his word pact. Every word in the Bible is chosen carefully. Overwhelmingly, we see that Rahab is tied to this identifier of prostitute. Why? We don't have a direct answer, but I do got a good guess for it. She's not a prostitute by choice. She didn't pick prostitute on career days. The most likely scenario Rahab was the victim of sex trafficking. That she had been used and abused over and over again. She didn't enter into that life on her own. She didn't have a say in the matter. Can you imagine the abuse of this woman faced, that she faced throughout her life? Women in general at that time in that part of the world are second-class citizens at best. They couldn't even testify in court. So a prostitute is barely considered a person, but rather just an item in the room. Can you imagine how she craved to be known and to be seen and to be truly loved and to just be great? And this word comes, this rumor gets into Jericho that spies are coming to the city, that the, there's men of Israel are spying on the land, and the Israelites are going to make a move on Jericho. And for the city of Jericho, it's sad news. There's a wave of depression that goes throughout the city. But for Rahab, it's a word of hope. It's a word of possibility. Because Rahab knew God. She knew enough, at least, as this foreign Canaanite woman she knew enough of who he was. She knew that God was in control of all things at all times. She knew that he was power enough, powerful enough to give the land over to the Israelites. She knew enough about who God was that when the king and his army came looking for those spies, she hid them away. She protected them. She lied to the king. She let the spies go free. And in doing so, was instrumental in God's people claiming their first victory in the promised land. Rahab goes on to find new life living amongst the Israelite people. She marries a man named Salmon. She gives birth to a son named Boaz, who eventually marries a woman named Ruth. Ruth is the great-great-grandmother of David. And from that line of David, from the tribe of Judah, generations later, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world of Jesus Christ comes. Rahab is grafted into the family of God. As a Christian, we're all grafted into the family of God. But she is literally genealogically tied into the bloodline of Jesus. Why? Because she had faith, and that faith showed up and bore fruit when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. 
James closes this section repeating what he did in verse 17, that faith apart from works is dead. That phrase is not just a catchy soundbite. It's a biblical truth that we need to hear this morning. If your faith doesn't do anything, if it can't change anything, then it's nothing. Your faith should produce fruit, not to give it life, but because we already have life. It's not what Abraham did or what Rahab did that saved them, but rather it was their faith that led them to that the way they did. It was a demonstration of the faith they had. And notice the difference between them, right? Abraham knew God. Abraham walked with God. Abraham had conversations with God. He heard the audible word of the creator of all existence. He spoke with God. He even argued with God. Rahab is a pagan lying prostitute. They could not be on more opposite ends of the spectrum of morality and niceness and goodness. She didn't have a deep theological grounding. She wasn't trained in the temple. She didn't commune with God one-on-one, but she knew enough. She had enough faith. It was weak. It was small. It was frail and fragile, but it was enough. It was enough there to lead her to respond when the opportunity presents itself. Like I said earlier that if we take these individual verses and we just isolate away from everything else. In the wrong context, it can seem to negate or ignore the rest of Scripture, right? James is not writing something new. He's not debating with Paul and the prophets and Jesus. He's in complete agreement with all of them. So if we take all of the context of this passage into account, we have to remember we're trying to answer what's the original question James is asking. What's the big question he's trying to get to the bottom of? It's been on every slide this morning. Can faith without works save? Can you just get by by saying, I believe, and have no evidence that you actually believe? That's the question he's trying to answer. James's answer, Scripture's answer, God's answer is no, because it's ineffective, useless, and dead. If your faith doesn't produce love for God and love for people, it's not real. Works don't save you. Your salvation comes by grace through faith. That's what it saves you. And from that is worked out works. Those works will be developed out of a love for God, a delight in God, an enjoyment in God, a hunger and thirst to know Him deeper. Because if it's just, look, I'm saved, and now there's stuff for me to do. Now I got this thing that I got to get done. And I go right back to that self righteous checklist style, right? which eventually will become an idol for us. Or we'll use it to judge how other people are just not as holy as we are. But rather, when our actions come from a place of delight and enjoyment and love of God, now we'll see works develop, not because I have to do these things, but because God called me to, because I get to. Am I going to do these things perfectly? No. Am I going to live into the love of God and love of people perfectly? No. But it's an opportunity for us to walk into something because of a delight in God. Because I love my wife and I enjoy her and I delight in her and I enjoy doing things for her. I don't want to do the dishes. I don't want to put laundry away. But I know it's a way for me to show love and kindness to my wife. Do I do those things perfectly? No. I am the king of like making our bedroom have to get walled off because there's clothes that are just folded all over it and it's not even a useful room anymore. I get half credit for those. Are we going to love God perfectly? No. Are we going to love each other perfectly? No. But as best we can, in our imperfect state, we can obey and love and follow and trust Him. This morning, we have the chance to examine our hearts. 
Do we have a faith that works? Do we have a faith that is active? Do we have a faith that is alive? Now, for many of us, you hear that question, and your brain immediately goes to, well, I was baptized, I read my Bible, I memorize verses, I get into a prayer meeting, I'm in community groups, and you start rattling off all the things that say, yeah, my faith is alive. Look how my whole week is dictated by doing church events. That's not the barometer. The spiritual checklist of stuff is not the way you are saved. It's not the way you determine whether or not you're saved. It's not what James has been talking about. Things like gathering on Sundays and being invested in Christian community and opening God's word and spending time in prayer, getting baptized, these things don't save us. They are gifts to us. They are to be a byproduct of our salvation and are the fuel for the fire of delight in God that has been set ablaze in a person who has been rejuvenated by the gospel. So when I ask you, does your faith work? The barometer you should be checking in is, do I love God? Do you delight in and enjoy and actually love him? Do you hunger and thirst to know him deeper? Do you enjoy his presence, his instruction, even his correction, his rebuke, and his encouragement? Even if it's frail, even if it's small, even if you're in a season where you're saying, man, I'm just kind of showing up. I know God's good, but man, it is hard to be a Christian. It is hard to walk in this even if it's real, even if it's tiny, even if we keep it biblical, it's just that mustard seed of love for God. That mustard seed of love can move mountains. But without it, without a love and a delight for God, regardless of how small, without it, you are lacking a relationship with God. You might think you are a Christian. You might be able to play Christian. But if your heart has not been changed, if your desire is not ultimately to glorify and exalt Him, you might say you are saved, but you're not. But this morning, there is hope available for you. There is joy. There is rest. There is forgiveness. No longer do you have to try and live a life of, I gotta go, I gotta do, I gotta work, I gotta be hard, I gotta work harder, try better, do more. That's the time. The works will come. The act of serving and glorifying and exalting God out of love and joy will naturally flow out of the heart that has been regenerated by the gospel. But it starts by placing your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust God. Trust his promise. Trust who he is. Trust his faithfulness. Trust his character. Trust that he loves you. And as you engage with the gifts and blessings of God that he has given you, you'll realize it's not to try and win and earn and leverage, but out of a delight and enjoyment and desires to him deeper, to see him clearer, to hear him louder, and to know him May we as a community, may we as individuals, as Christians, as sons and daughters of God, come to be rooted and grounded in love. May we have the strength to comprehend what is the height and depth and width and breadth of the love of Christ for us. That we might be filled with the fullness of God and let that fullness pour out and flood this world with love for God and love for people. Amen. Let's pray.
showing you. To not see our faith, to not see, not see these things as a, as a list of things we have to accomplish or as a burden, but to just enjoy you and your presence. To sit with you, to hear from you, to be still, to push the distractions aside and just be with you. God, give us a heart, give us minds, give us, give us a desire to be that person, God. Because we know we aren't just going to wake up one day and be magically mature Christians. We're not going to wake up one day and just magically decide that's a thing we want. But God, give us hearts to delight and enjoy you. Because we know out of that enjoyment will flow the works, will flow the things that glorify you, that make much of you, that shine the light of the gospel in this world. Thank you. 